Salam and good evening to you worthy friends. Welcome to When We Were Young, podcast of mystery, of enchantment, and the finest film criticism this side of the Ellie River on sale today. Come on down! I can see that you're only interested in the exceptionally rare. I think then you would be most rewarded to consider not this episode, as it is the second episode this year we're doing on animated films from Disney. <laughs> Perhaps you would like to hear the tale anyway? It begins on a dark night where a trio of dark hosts wait with a dark purpose. <laughs> I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to throw her entire life away for a human man. <laughs> I am Seth, the host most likely to be a big pig, and you could be a big pig too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to admit that in the past he's been a nasty. They weren't kidding when they called him, well, a witch. <laughs> Inspired by all the quote-unquote live-action adaptations of classic Disney movies released in the last few years, Lanking, <coughs> today we will be discussing the movies of the Disney Renaissance. Actually, there are way too many movies in the Disney Renaissance. There are ten, in fact. So we're only covering the ones that really matter, which is The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. As I said, we've previously covered Disney's classic age of animation in episode 61 with Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi. We're jumping to the late 80s and early 90s this time when Disney decided to go crazy Broadway style, and it turned out pretty well for them. So before we get started, I wanted to ask you guys, again, we all know that we all love Disney <laughs> in, you know, moderate to high levels. Um, but how big were these particular four movies in your life when you were growing up? Did you connect to one more than the others? Were they all the same for you? I'll start. All of these movies were very, very dear to me growing up. I saw all of them in the theaters. I would kind of immediately buy the VHS tape yeah. of these. <laughs> But I particularly connected to The Little Mermaid. I was a kid who was, like, bullied and ostracized. And also I had, like, overprotective parents growing up. So at that time, it felt like there was some kind of adventurous, interesting life out somewhere that I was old enough to perceive, but wasn't really old enough and didn't have the ability to make for myself. And so I really connected with Ariel's, like, sense of yearning and searching. And also, I was really, really big into swimming at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so I connected with its aquatic nautical themes as well. <laughs> nautical themes. Yeah, I saw all these movies in theaters too. I don't know that any of them I was more connected to than others. I think I liked pieces of all of them. There's definitely some that stayed with me more as the years went on, but I don't know that at the time I was particularly drawn to one or the other because there were four and a lot of them, you know, they were coming out as we were kids. So at first there was just one and it was like, all right, I'll watch this one. And then, you know, there were two. So it wasn't like there was a big wealth of options from this particular era to watch. And I guess like the fact that they came out in theaters maybe was a novelty, but they were also re-releasing movies like Bambi and stuff at the time, which I sometimes saw in theaters too. So I'm not sure that at the time I perceived these as really distinct from like other Disney movies, really. I didn't watch these movies, I don't think, particularly more than like Cinderella and Bambi and Dumbo. Like I, I don't 
recall being like overly familiar with these versus the other ones. I do have some like kind of fun memories just seeing like The Little Mermaid. I went with my friend Tiffany, who remains one of my good friends. So the fact that we saw The Little Mermaid together in theaters is just really funny. And my mom took us and Tiffany had to be escorted out because she was too (laughs) afraid of the eels at one point. (laughs) I get it. Flotsam and Jetsam, baby. Yeah. And I I think I stayed behind in the theater by myself. I guess maybe because I had just braved Batman in the theaters that year. (laughs) So yeah, this all I could totally handle. checks out. <laughs> I could handle it. As for the movies, not super nostalgic memories. What struck me really was the soundtracks because I owned at least most of these. I don't know if I actually had the Little Mermaid cassette tape, but I know I had the other three. Did you make your sister buy the Little Mermaid soundtrack and then you just listened to I it? I may have, but she was like really little at that point. So. <laughs> you made your sister sign up for a credit card? <laughs> I mean, it would not surprise me if I did that. I do not recall it if it happened. But I also, I had a Walkman around this time. So looking back on these movies reminded me of kind of the first time that I maybe had a piece of pop culture to myself. Because when watching movies, obviously someone would take me to the theater. I was like, you know, five, six, seven. And then even watching them at home, you know, like it was in a room that other people were in. And a lot of times my sister was around. But when I was listening to the soundtracks, it was in my room on my little cassette player or even like in the back of a car on a road trip, like listening to the Lion King soundtrack. And so that's what felt kind of like special to me or personal to me is the connection I had to the music, which I listened to way more than I ever watched the movies. And I'm so familiar with the songs, even though there are a lot of lyrics that were kind of unintelligible and still kind of are to me. Like, I kind of have to look them up. But I, I still remember the kind of blah, blah, blah ways that I would sing them mm-hmm. if I didn't know what the words <laughs> yes, were. Yes. Like those, even those just nonsense out, lyrics <laughs> are part of the songs to me. So yeah, and then also just like thinking back on it, just the fact that The Little Mermaid came out when we were about five years old and The Lion King came out when I guess we were about 10 or 11. That's like the prime age mm-hmm. to be watching Disney movies in theaters. And so that it just struck me that we are like literally born at the perfect time to experience these movies. I don't think if we were a couple years older, we might have like kind of phased out of this by the time The Lion King came out, or if we had been born later, we probably would have missed The Little Mermaid in theater, so at the time, obviously, we didn't really know what we were living through. It was just like, hey, great movies, but like, looking back on it now, it's kind of like amazing that these movies so perfectly frame the years in our childhood that we would like to watch these kinds of movies. I was thinking the exact same thing, like, it is perfect kismet that I was born at the right time, that to be that age when these movies came out. I remember I I saw all of them in theaters, of course. Aladdin, I went for my 10th birthday, I believe. I like that was my like party. I was able to bring three friends to Aladdin and then we went to uh, Nathan's after and played games. Okay, well I remember I wow. saw uh, around this time Cops and Robertsons at uh, one of my birthdays, so I think you win. <laughs> These movies were my life. I loved them, and I think I said during our classic era of Disney that I would watch all Disney movies from all eras, but the second The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin came out, I was like, fuck those movies. <laughs> like, and I would just watch these four movies all the time, but the one that hit me the most, that like has stuck with me the most, is The Lion King, like by far. I was so obsessed with that movie that I think we only saw it once in theaters, and I was 11, and my mom somehow got like a bootleg copy of it, like taped wow. off. 
like the movie and like yeah like <laughs> I think it was still in theaters and she got me this bootleg copy and I would just watched it on repeat I wore out the tape and then by the time like it actually came on VHS like then I bought that I was around 11 12 and I was really getting into drawing with crayons like not like scribbling but actually like drawing and I remember I got a sparkle pack of crayons and I was like what could I draw with like crayons that have glitter in them and I was like well I like Aladdin and Princess Jasmine might look pretty and I was like drawing Princess Jasmine with these colors and I was like eh like I don't know and then my mom got me a deck of trading cards from the Lion King and like you could buy different packs of them and all they were were trading cards <laughs> like there was like a picture a, a picture from the they were like you know trading card size yeah. with a cell from the movie like a screenshot and then like something on the back that was like oh, it was Nala like Nala's this person right. you know like whoever's on it I have it. those now that you mention it I have yeah. but they're not yeah. like a game like Pokemon they don't no. have no, it's not even a game. they can make you're just and... supposed to collect them all yeah and I did <laughs> and I I looked at them and then I started drawing like one of like Simba and then I literally got through every single one and then they're right over there I have them <laughs> like I brought them all they're all I have about 60 something of my own drawings when I was in 6th grade of drawing the Lion King so I literally can draw Simba by heart like I know how to dress Simba like what his eyes look like like just memorization that is just like within me <laughs> like to know what like Simba he went through the training he program lives yeah. in you. he lives in me <laughs> he does I was just obsessed I got I had a Simba and Nala puppet like stuffed hand animal puppets? hand puppets Aww. they were like my stuffed animals but they happen to also be puppet like I was just obsessed with the Lion King <laughs> So it's very special to me, that movie in particular. So let's talk about the Disney Renaissance. So there are different eras of Disney. Um, we previously talked about the the very first, the classical, with their first five theatrically theatrically released movies. The Disney Renaissance, um, although Chris has argued this with me, <laughs> what is actually the Disney Renaissance. <laughs> and we'll argue it once more. Yes. Uh, Disney Renaissance is uh, between 1989 and 1999. So it's ten full years. Five. <laughs> it is The Little Mermaid that was in 1989, The Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. I feel like we're all in agreement, and maybe the whole world is in agreement, that the quality dipped down when it got to Pocahontas, and then it like maybe kind of like, they're not terrible, but they're just, they're nowhere near the quality of these four movies that we're going to discuss today. So that's why it feels like it's a different era. But it's the same era because basically, uh, thematically, they're all very similar besides maybe the Rescuers Down Under. They're all incorporating Broadway-style songs and scores. And the animation style is very similar. The sidekicks that are like goofy sidekicks and the types of villains, like they're all very similar in addition to having the same kinds of musical sensibilities. Yeah, I think behind the scenes, like it is one era. And in terms of the evolution of the animation, it's definitely continuous, kind of the, the way that things evolved. It's just such a stark contrast between where the Lion King ends and then the rest begins. And I think not only is it the quality of the films, because I actually think that a couple of the later films are among some of the best Disney movies still, and that maybe one or two of the ones that we're going to talk about today are... Overrated, maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, we won't get into that right now. Can you feel the love tonight? Because <laughs> I can feel the storm coming. <laughs> also, I feel like The Lion King was sort of made at this time that Disney was celebrating its success and knew that it was successful, but hadn't quite crawled up its own ass. <laughs> 
<laughs> which you know we'll get into later but just that like I feel like after the Lion King movies like Pocahontas were very much reactions to what had come before and how the public had received the movies that came before and so I think that those original four not counting the rescuers in there because that's a very kind of an outlier those four are kind of more like purely made and a little bit more experimental and that the rest in a lot of ways feel like shadows of those first four movies well and I think the key there is how reactive they became the trajectory is they started this era out ahead of the curve and they very quickly fell behind the curve and never really recovered yeah like what you were saying Seth it felt like they were starting a trend at the beginning of this era and by the middle of it they were just trying to repeat their success instead of creating new things it just felt like oh look there's a funny side character in Pocahontas and in Tarzan and in Mulan and it's oh this thing that I already saw like five times like instead of trying to create new things they just kept doing their own tropes yeah yeah It, it became very formulaic So Walt Disney died in 1966 and his brother Roy Disney died in 1971. The films released for the next 18 years were commercially and critically disappointing compared to Disney's earlier slate of films. Um, The deaths of the men who started the company were a huge blow, but it also didn't help that during production of The Fox and the Hound, longtime animator Don Bluth left the company with 11 other animators to start his own animation company and release The Secret of Nim, which is a story idea that Don Bluth pitched to Disney but was rejected for being too dark. Well, (laughs) it was. Accurate, accurate. In 1985, to make more room for live-action filmmaking, the animation department was moved from the main Disney lot in Burbank to a temporary location in various hangars, warehouses, and trailers two miles east in Glendale, and it would remain there for the next 10 years. So, for a while, they didn't really care about the animation department, <laughs> which is strange for Ousted Disney. Ousted from the mouse house. Yeah. Mouse did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Never apologize. The 1985 PG-rated feature The Black Cauldron bombed at the box office, and the future of the animation department was in jeopardy. Disney decided to found a television animation division in the late 80s, which was against a 30-year studio policy, and it produced shows like DuckTales, which were hits for children's television. Roy E. Disney, which was Roy Disney's son, persuaded Michael Eisner to let him supervise the animation department in hopes of improving its fortunes, the theatrically animation department. In 1986, Disney released The Great Mouse Detective, while Don Bluth released An American Tale. An American Tale outperformed The Great Mouse Detective. It became the higher grossing film on its release date. Again, very strange that two animated mouse movies were released (laughs) on the same date. (laughs) Kind of feels like there's a little bit of a revenge-y thing. Yeah, (laughs) Personal attack thing in there. Yeah, especially since, like, an American tale, well, I guess it has the word tail in the title, like, as in a mouse tail, but it's like, it doesn't have to be mice. Like, (laughs) you know, it could have been any animal, really. It's gotta be mice. This leads us to The Little Mermaid. Disney had been developing The Little Mermaid since the 1930s, and by 1988, after the success of Roger Rabbit, which helped bring traditional animation back into the public's interest, the studio decided to make an animated musical, much like many of its previous animated movies, but with a more Broadway feel to it. So let's talk about The Little Mermaid. The Little 
Little Mermaid was released November 17th, 1989. It was written and directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, based off the story by Hans Christian Andersen, although we'll get to it, but it's very different. (laughs) (laughs) Songs by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. They will be repeated several times in this podcast. They are a songwriting team that wrote Little Shop of Horrors, which was a Broadway hit. And they wrote a few other things together, but that was their biggest hit on Broadway. And they were pretty much immediately picked up by Disney to write all the songs for their movies. Not a bad deal. The budget for Little Mermaid was $40 million, and the box office was $233 million. It beat Don Bluth's All Dogs Go to Heaven, which opened the same day in 1989. Wow. <laughs> There's a little, a little rivalry there. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Disney wins. It was nominated for three Oscars, Best Song for Kiss the Girl. It won for Best Song, Under the Sea, and Best Score. On Rotten Tomatoes, it got a 93%. Most of the reviews were very, very positive. For example, Richard Corliss from Time Magazine said, The Little Mermaid reclaims the movie house as a dream palace and the big screen as a window into enchantment. Live action filmmakers see this and try to top it. Go on and try. Meanwhile, Mike Clark at USA Today said, The Little Mermaid, or Hans Christian Andersen Goes Hip, is the most thoroughly Socko Kitty cartoon feature in decades. I don't know what that means, but I wanted to share it. I think it's. I think it's good. <laughs> it was a positive review. It was. A, it was a hundred okay. on Metacritic. Oh, it's not so. short for psychopath. <laughs> and Christian Anderson goes hip. Sounds like it sounds like a Batman action verb. Buffo socko. Yeah. <laughs> So the original Little Mermaid story by Hans Christian Andersen is pretty much the same as the movie up until like halfway through. Instead of just giving up her voice, the sea witch says she can have legs, but whenever she dances, her feet will be in excruciating pain, like daggers are shooting through her feet and her feet will bleed. The prince also ends up marrying some other girl he thought rescued him, not the sea witch in disguise. And the little mermaid is visited by her sisters who tell her she can return to being a mermaid if she stabs the prince and kills him. But she decides not to and she turns into sea foam. So, as well that ends well. Don't know it's a lot more relatable romance for, <laughs> for is, me, at least. That is so much more metal. I love that. Like, <laughs> the embrace of mortality is a thing I always liked about the older versions of these fairy tales. <laughs> Howard Ashman, the lyricist and one of the producers, at his urging, the character of Clarence, an English butler crab, was changed to Jamaican Crab Sebastian. This change influenced the score and the songs had more of like a Jamaican tint to them, like Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl. And he also thought it was very important to hire actors with musical theater backgrounds like Jodie Benson, who he worked on in a Broadway show called Smile. She played Ariel and sang the part of Ariel as well. Howard Ashman, very important in kind of laying out the groundwork for this Broadway era of Disney. So The Little Mermaid, tell me, what did you think about watching it as an adult? I wasn't as overjoyed by it now as I was when I was a kid, obviously. Uh, You know, my capacity to feel and experience joy has been totally shot to hell by this point. (laughs) But I did still find it mostly enjoyable. It made me reconnect to that feeling that I was talking about earlier, that like I really empathized with Ariel like feeling like a person who was kind of isolated and trying to find my own like identity. And this would have been like just before the age where I even started like questioning my sexual orientation, but I do think it is kind of connected to that in a way as well. Like in a way like feeling like I'm different and like I want different things than most of the people around me. Except for you actually did want to hang around like a shirtless daddy mermaid, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was the other part is where was my prince? Like, (laughs) how could I snag my prince? Where is the sea witch I have to bargain with to find my prince? (laughs) I still think it's a good bargain. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, as a golden-voiced diva, Chris, I'm not sure I could make the same exchange, but I totally understand. I was very delighted by this film watching it again. It was the first of these movies that I rewatched, knowing that it was my favorite of this era already, um, just thematically. I've seen probably almost all of these movies since, you know, I was a kid, at least once or twice, and definitely I had seen this one. So I knew that at least on some level it would hold up, and for me, it really did. Like, I experienced all sort of the magic and joy that you should um, from watching these movies, and just had a great time with it. Like, I'll go more specifically into, you know, what exactly I like about this, but I, I just, everything was there and it was really tight and unlike a couple of other (laughs) movies that we might talk about had nothing really that yeah it has no fat on it at all yeah like it's very well structured i don't have that much distance from these four movies i know them so well (laughs) i watched confirmed two of them with with you guys and i was offering all night to sing along and say the dialogue but you guys did not take me up on my offer (laughs) we were declining all night (laughs) we did tape her mouth shut for a bit (laughs) we stole her voice (laughs) we're like ursula you are needed here (laughs) thank you for giving it back for the podcast (laughs) (laughs) So because of that, because I don't think that I could get away from it, I tried to be inebriated watching these movies. (laughs) Like, I actively was like, I need to distance myself somehow to, like, look at this with fresh eyes. Um, Fresh drunk eyes. (laughs) Drunk Disney eyes. Yes. And it it was a perfect, like, because I'm just so close to these movies. This movie was magical. (laughs) This movie's great. It's just beautiful. The music is so good. The music is so good. And I think even besides the music, it's not like I'm waiting for the next song. Like, I'm still, I think the character designs are beautiful. The ocean is beautiful. The sidekick moments work. The jokes yeah. actually land. Yeah, the jokes <laughs> land. They're funny. Yeah. Um, Ariel's hair is the MVP of this movie. <laughs> like, whether she's in the water or she's on land, her hair is just spectacular. <laughs> I have never understood the aerodynamics of her bangs, but I'm on board with them. <laughs> the aerial dynamics. I love them. They're so <laughs> 80s. Like, the giant puffy bangs. They are, they're but, pageant-winning bangs. <laughs> but she's fucking gorgeous. Ariel is hot. <laughs> I loved it. It really felt magical. And we, I feel like with all these movies, we can pick them apart, but like they're fairy tales. Okay. Like one of the things is like, she just sees him and she falls in love. And we've talked about like having problems with that in other movies, like where you just see somebody from a distance. Yeah, and for me, in this movie, that works so well because she's so established as a 16-year-old girl. Right. That she's already established as someone who's flighty and she already has this goal where she (laughs) wants to be on land. So I think what really works for me in this movie is that she doesn't see him and then be like, I want to be on land, like, make me a human. It's the opposite. It's that she wants to be a human and then she sees this guy who happens to, like, kind of align with her goal, but that she has this larger goal that she wants to be a part of their world I think makes it so much stronger than the fact that she's just doing it for a guy. Well, and it's also established that she's easily distracted by shiny objects. <laughs> and he is nothing if not that. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I just found, like, the story of her and her father just very relatable. Even, I think, when you're a kid, you can relate to it just because, you know, you want things and your parents won't let you have them. And mm-hmm. and that only gets stronger, like, as you get older. And I think this is a very 16-year-old girl and her father story. So on that level, it just, it really, for as fantastical as it is, it's also on a, like, beat-by-beat level, like, a very relatable story to kids and teenagers. Yeah, and just very grounded in that actual character, not just in, oh, look at how beautiful this landscape is. I love that Ariel has character from the very moment we see her when they're like, we are the daughters of Triton and they're singing this song and Ariel's not there. And then Triton is like, Ariel. And then immediately it cuts (laughs) to her popping up and she's just like full of like excitement and wonder. And it was such a great character introduction moment. It was also very Alvin of Alvin and the Chipmunks. (laughs) 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 Ariel! But I just, I love her facial expressions and just there's personality falling out of her. <laughs> like, I Yeah, just... and it actually shocked me that the movie was this early because I think the animation does so much to convey that. Yeah, I really also noticed the introduction of Ariel or kind of the anti-introduction of Ariel because she <laughs> ends up not being there. Mm-hmm. And that's such a perfect like way to metaphorically represent who she is. Is she someone who does not want to be there and doesn't show up for, you know, important mer things? <laughs> <laughs> and instead is up, like, mooning over the sky. Even before that, I think the movie has such a great intro, because we start actually on the surface, which I did not remember, and you actually meet Prince Eric before you meet Ariel, and he's on the ship, and there's a sea shanty, and then a fish escapes, and that's your introduction to this world. And the, just the fish, like, breathing a sigh of relief in the mm-hmm. way that that, like, leads into, like, the opening titles. Oh, it's so beautiful. And showing you the beautiful animation of the undersea. I, I really appreciated that this film had a Bambi-level sort of attention to an ecosystem. Even though this is much less of a kind of exploration of, you know, a community than Bambi was, you can see in the background that there's been so much studying of, like, real sea creatures and that, like, there's always something to look at in the background. And it, for as much as it's a fantasy, like, the ocean life feels like a real thing. A few years ago, I watched Oliver and Company because it had just been forever. That came out, I think, right before The Little Mermaid? Right before. Wow, Um, okay. so I remember just like there was one Billy Joel song because he was a character. I was like, I like that Billy Joel song. Maybe the movie will be good. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. And the animation was so poor. Mm. Like I was taken aback about I was like, wait a minute. Disney at the very least is supposed to be like a beautifully animated. But there was this time where it was like cutting corners and very cheaply cheap looking. And the yeah. designs weren't very interesting. That it's so remarkable that what came next was The Little Mermaid. It's like they completely overhauled everything. And the detail in this movie, I really love the lighting in Poor Unfortunate Souls. Like when Ursula starts writing the contract out or when she's doing the spell, the lighting is gorgeous. Like there's even details like that is just, it must have been such a shock back in the day for people maybe older than us to see Oliver and Company and then see The Little Mermaid. Well, and also like I remember my relatives would watch Oliver and Company and I just literally would not even sit down to watch it because the shoddiness of the animation... Yeah. And like, I don't remember who the voice actors were in it, but yeah, it just, it, you I could tell even Joy at that Lawrence. age. <laughs> I think Bette Midler is in that too. Yes. Yeah. I think Joy Lawrence. Yeah. I might be making yeah, that no, up. Like, even at that right. age, even at that age, I could tell it was like, 
a cut below. Yeah, it's like forgettable. Yeah. And these are un like for better or worse, these movies are unforgettable that were Well in Poor Unfortunate Souls, like the lighting, I think Becky, you're really hitting on something. Like it the the animation quality is like beautiful in terms of like clean lines and all that stuff. But also like their use of lighting in telling the story is just really beautiful throughout the whole movie. I have a question. What's the moral of this movie? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the moral of this movie is? I think the moral is change yourself and leave your entire life behind for a man you barely know. I couldn't put my finger on what I'm taking away at the end, though. Like, obviously, like, Triton allows his daughter to live her own life, but also... Like he's letting her his sixteen year old daughter marry a stranger <laughs> because he seems like an upti- like an upright guy. <laughs> well, this is verging into territory that I think will apply through all of these movies. I don't think Ariel is really given all that much agency in this story. At best, the closest thing that women in Disney movies can hope for as far as liberation is getting married to a man. I mean, I'll I'll save the like broader critique for later. But was Eric a prince? Yeah, Eric's a prince, right? Yeah. So he's going to become a king. Yeah. Okay. So I guess she's also a princess because so, it's King Triton, right? But, and yeah. Ariel. I also just want to point out because, but I'm also going to repeat this throughout <laughs> that like even the character who is shown to us as being very individually driven and being very kind of on paper feminist in a in a certain way, wanting to free herself, wanting to be a free woman, is still. Even at the point of being able to use magic, at best, able to just marry into royalty or be born royalty. And like, that's the only way that she can really get free is because whether it's through Triton or through Eric, she's going to be one person with a lot of power. Not no. Uh, (laughs) Because I think that that is an issue that gets worse and worse in aggregate. The more Disney movies you look at, the worse that problem becomes. Absolutely. In this particular movie, for one, I mean, there's not really any reason why she needs to be a princess and he actually needs to be a prince. Like, the story could play out pretty much the same if there was no royal connection. And I think maybe the fact that she's a mermaid, like, softens the blow of the fact that she needs to be a princess just because it's like, what even is a monarchy under the water? (laughs) Like, we don't really know the rules of that. It's fine. (laughs) How many kingdoms are there? Just one ocean? Are there lots of province (laughs) kingdoms? Anyway, you know, we don't have to think about those questions. To me, the arc of the movie is a little bit more about the parents than the children, or, you know, kind of about the two of them rather than just her. I do think that, like I said before, like the fact that she wants to be on the surface in general, like helps it not be just like she changed herself for a man because that's something that she wanted Mm -hmm. anyway and sings about like specifically wanting legs earlier in the movie before she even meets him. So I think that that is helpful for that. But I was sort of touched this time by both King Triton's kind of arc and the fact that he's like letting her go at the end and also the way that Sebastian's arc in this movie kind of mirrors that is that his arc is sort of from someone who finds her like to be a pest and, and just annoying. He's trying to do his job and she's kind of getting in the way of it and then he gets put in charge of her and he ends up kind of being a proud kind of father character and, and helping her out along the way and he also has to kind of go through the arc of like letting her you know do what she wants to do. So I do think that overall the arc is just like you have to let your kids you know be who they are. You can't dictate who they should be and that as a child you have to kind of follow your own path and not you know listen to your 
parents, even though it may get you in trouble. And what I love about this movie, which reminded me of Pinocchio a lot, is that she makes bad choices and that the movie allows her to make bad choices and that the bad things that happen are the result of the choices that she makes. You know, she signs this contract with the sea witch. You know, she does not read the fine print. (laughs) Boys and girls, read the fine print of your contracts. (laughs) Especially underwater. Especially when a giant purple woman is (laughs) snickering (laughs) evilly while you are signing the contract. That's probably not a good sign. But she does do something very rash and that's very, you know, just motivated by sort of a her heart is not well thought through and she doesn't listen to good advice. But that's what 16-year-olds do. And I really liked that this movie allowed her to sort of be the driving force of the bad things that happen rather than it just being like a witch came and did something mean, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that she really gets herself into this mess and then has to get herself out of it or, you know, enlists her various sea friends to help her get out of it. Prince Eric's voice is Greg from the Brady Bunch movie. What? Indeed. Um, and <laughs> what? How dreamy do we think Prince Eric is? Are we are we into Prince Eric? Um. Well, should, I feel like at the end we should compare all the main yeah. princes in terms of it, bangability. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> Specifically. Um, yeah, I never thought Eric was particularly hot. I would not like go on dry land for him at all. He's all that's right. A, yeah, that's a big life change. And I also wouldn't give up my voice for that. I like that, you know, he's also young-ish. I think he's 21, I think they say that at some point in the movie. But I really like that, like, he has this idealized woman in his head who is Ariel, which he doesn't know. But like, And then she, like, literally shows up basically on his front doorstep. And yet, because she doesn't have, like, this one thing that he's obsessing over, like, he's like, oh, she's not the girl. And he's still obsessing about someone else. I just found that to be, like, a very, like, teenage thing to do that like the perfect girl is right in front of you but you're obsessing over this one kind of thing but he kind of gets over that over the course of the movie like he's he's looking at Ariel being like wow she's beautiful or she's funny and they have a fun day together it's like he is actually getting over this fantasy woman and he's falling in love with the person in front of him, which I thought was nice. Mm-hmm. I think we need to talk a little bit more about Ursula, right? Like- <laughs> um, we need to talk at least an hour more about Ursula. <laughs> best Disney villain ever or best Disney villain ever? <laughs> Bestiest, best <laughs> Disney <laughs> villain ever. I mean, Poor Unfortunate Souls is definitely up there for best song. Yeah. I admit that in the past I've been a nasty They weren't kidding when they called me well a witch But you'll find that nowadays I've mended all my ways Repented, seen the light and made a switch Two years And I fortunately knew a little magic It's a talent that I always have possessed And here lately, please don't laugh I use it on behalf of the miserable, lonely and depressed Pathetic. Poor unfortunate souls in pain, in need. This one longing to be thinner, that one wants to get the girl, and do I help them? Yes, indeed. Those poor unfortunate souls, so sad, so true. They come flocking to my cauldron, crying, spells, Ursula, please, and I help them? Yes, I do. Ursula is so fucking fun. Her, she looks <laughs> so, amazing. Her she looks so fucking great. Is iconic. She was um the design was based off of Divine, the drag queen. And and if you know Divine, yeah, you can see that. And if you don't know Divine, what is wrong with you? Stop <laughs> listening to us and come back later, watch some John Waters movies. 
Yeah, I mean, every moment that she's on screen, I mean, this movie is very watchable no matter who's on screen. Like, there's no, not a dull moment, but when she's on screen, it's just like, you dare not, like, look away. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, every line is, like, delicious, just the way yeah. that she delivers it. In it. Yeah. So I was so struck that this movie, being the first one, and, you know, not really using a tried-and-true formula, has not only one of the best, if not the best, villain song, but has a great romance song with Kiss the Girl, has a great, like, funny humor song with Under the Sea. A great I Want song. Exactly. And so, like, all of those songs are as if the formula was perfected, but this was really, like, creating that formula. Mm -hmm. So I just am kind of astounded by how together this movie is in, in, as a musical, I mean, first and foremost, but in pretty much every other way, too. Yeah. So after The Little Mermaid, The Rescuers Down Under was released in 1990. Wasn't a very big hit. In fact, it kind of bombed at the box office, which is surprising. You'd think that Little Mermaid would have at least, like, pushed that. Um, but it uh, wasn't yeah. a musical, and it was, uh, I think, their very first sequel. Yes. I watched half of it. Chris, you watched the whole thing. I did indeed. I don't understand why it bombed, because it's a totally fine movie, you know, and it's actually quite well animated. It was the first Disney movie um, to be created digitally, so there was no camera. Everything was, like, loaded in digitally instead oh. of, like, Scans filming digitally. it. Yeah. Okay. Because previously they would literally film the right. animation cells. Yeah. I remember it also had the first computer animated uh, bit in the very beginning and some flight sequences, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, so you can definitely, it, like, it's a departure from especially, like, The First Rescuers, which was in the 70s, which I also watched just kind of randomly, and which had much cruder animation than even, like, the early ones that we watched. Like, there was definitely a, a slump in the middle of Disney's run there. But this movie, it's, like, funny. There's, like wacky side characters. John Candy is a voice of a wacky bird that's very Scuttle-like. It's totally fine. Like, it's not a great movie. It's kind of confused in its plot because it's about the rescuers, but they're kind of barely in it. And they're they're voiced by Bob Newhart and Ava Gabor, which is just <laughs> such a throwback, like, yeah. for the late 80s, or I guess 1990. Yeah, like, it's a bit of a, like, mishmash of, like, kind of what Disney had been doing in the 70s versus what they were doing with technology, like, later, but it's not a bad movie, and so I it's disagree. Weird. I thought it was bad. <laughs> I thought it was really not great. Um, I always really liked the opening shot, which was computer animated, and it was, like, going through the outback, like, like at full speed. It was a very, like, exciting start to the movie. But, like, the movie stars a li- not the rescuers, but a little boy who lives in the outback of Australia, and he's in a- he has an American voice and is like a little blonde boy, and he even says at one point like "No worries, mom," <laughs> with like a completely like American accent, and I was just like, "Oh my god!" Like already, this just seems like wrong. Like it should have been a little Aboriginal boy, or at least an Australian. <laughs> it was so strange. Um, and then the rescuers don't come in for like thirty three minutes, and also they're. I'm complaining too much about this movie. Like, the plot doesn't make any sense. They, like, fly in the rescuers from New York to to, to the middle of Australia. But also, like, they were um, experimenting with computer animation, but there's a part where they're flying um, into Sydney and, like, you zoom... Like, they fly into, like, the Sydney Opera House, but it's just so rudimentary computer animation that, like, there's absolutely no details to it, and it looks it looks so dated that it's hard to watch, like it's laughable now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the premise of The Rescuers is a bit wonky, just because, like, both of the movies are about kidnapped children, and it's like, is it really helpful to send mice, like, across the world? Is that the best way to rescue them? Aren't there some mice that could rescue the kid in his own country? Well, there is a hot Australian mouse that comes in about halfway through this movie, and does perk things up a bit. But, yeah, I mean, I, I thought the animation was quite pretty, for the most part. Like, just the Australian outback. Like, they were definitely doing the groundwork for what they would later do mostly with the Lion King. And it's funny, like the the animal sidekicks are funny. Like there he meets a bunch of um like there's a, a lizard that that kind of steals the movie like when he comes in. And I think he's only in sort of the middle of the sequence. But you know, I mean I it's not at the level of these other movies, but I thought it was perfectly fine and like didn't deserve to be like such a bomb mm. let's move on to beauty and the beast <laughs> that's all i have to say <laughs> yeah. about the rescuers down under be our guest be our guest put our service to the test tie your napkin round your neck sherry and we provide the rest soup du jour hot hors d'oeuvre why we only live to serve try the gray stuff it's delicious don't believe me ask the dishes they can sing they can dance after all miss this is france and a dinner here is never second best go on unfold your menu take a glance and then you'll be our guest we our guest be our guest Beauty and the Beast was released November 22nd, 1991. It was directed by Gary Truesdell and Kirk Wise, written by Linda Wolverton, based off the book by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. Songs, again, by Ellen Mankin and Howard Ashman. The budget was $25 million. The box office was $425 million. Wow. The movie was nominated for six Oscars. It won for Best Song, Beauty and the Beast, and Best Score. It was also nominated for Be Our Guest and Belle for Songs. Best Sound and Best Picture, making it the first animated movie in history to be nominated for Best Picture, and it lost to Silence of the Lambs. Similar. Very similar. Which one was animated? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Rotten Tomatoes score has it at 94%. Reviews were pretty much uh, across the board excellent. <laughs> uh, Roger Ebert said at the time, Beauty and the Beast reaches back to an older and healthier Hollywood tradition in which the best writers, musicians, and filmmakers are gathered for a project on the assumption that a family audience deserves great entertainment too. So yeah, Beauty and the Beast, what'd you think? That review is really interesting actually to contextualize this because I am trying to go back to 1991 in my mind to watch this before so many other things had come out afterwards. Because I, I do think that this was very much a return to a sort of classic fairy tale. In some ways, a return to some of the earlier Disney movies like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty because it's about castles and princes and, and enchantment in a way that feels different than The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid, the character is a little, like, there's just a little more spice to that movie, I feel like. It, it's, like, a little bit more, I don't know if I want to say edgy, but, you know, Ursula as a villain is so colorful, and Ariel is, is kind of a bratty young teenager, and this is much more, like, adult in, in, a, in a way. The story is much more 
classic and adult and it feels like a pretty direct adaptation of a fairy tale unlike The Little Mermaid which obviously took a lot of departures from the original story this one really follows the original I think much more to me the story just doesn't hold up as well and I'll get into kind of specifics why but I found that there's a lot less to kind of dig into as an adult like it's very beautifully animated and very well made and maybe it's just personal preference but I just didn't find anything to really connect to or latch on to other than sort of the elegance that it's made with. This was about the point in the Disney revisiting uh, that I started to wonder if all of these movies are about normalizing really fucked up power dynamics in relationships. <laughs> so yeah, I totally agree with everything you said, Chris. And I and I think this character of Belle seems much more like an adult trying to leave her small town than like a child longing to, like, know what the outside world is like. I think that Belle is not at all wrong to see herself as a prisoner of the castle. I think there is something kind of MRA about the way that the Beast approaches relationships with women, thinking that kind of, like, physically ensnaring her should be enough to, like, earn her heart, basically. But, I mean, that's the point, right? Because that he learns not to do that. Well, does he? Or does does he he learn that doing that gets you a hot woman? Does he? Yeah, I feel like it's kind of, that's kind of paid off by the story, not challenged by it. So I kind of agree with both. I think this movie is a classic. It's beautiful. The songs are amazing. I remember every single word of these songs. Oh, yeah. Every single word. (laughs) The songs are incredible. Totally hold up. Do you want me to sing Belle right now? Every part? Because I will. (laughs) Uh, Do you know who also doesn't want (laughs) you to sing Belle right now? Is my fourth grade teacher. (laughs) I think it was fourth grade because for some reason I was like listening to the soundtrack in class one time and like humming it and it was like kind of the first time I realized that humming was uh, audible to other people wait other people can hear it when I hum look there she goes that girl is so peculiar sometimes when you're quietly humming it's not that quiet during silent reading time (laughs) I think that it's a fairy tale there's suspension of disbelief but out of all of these four movies This is the one I connect to least, even though I watched it all the time growing up. I don't think I've ever owned it, and I've owned the others. And I just kind of forget about it. But I still think it's beautiful. The music is beautiful. There's a lot to like about this movie, but I think that this is the one that brings up the most questions for me. That I'm just like, wait a minute, what about this? And what about this? And what about that? And you can... can brush that aside and just enjoy it. But this is the one when I'm watching it where I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Let's just get into those questions right now. I think we should because that kind of like is my reaction to the movie is that I just kind of kept being like, wait a second, what? Like, and yeah. it's, yes, it's a fairy tale and you are supposed to like pick and prod these movies apart. But yeah, this is the one that those questions like keep coming up and like are hardest to dismiss. Whereas with other movies, I don't have that problem. Like I can just be like, eh, I don't know. Like it's a fairy tale. Like let's not worry about it. Number one for me is in Be Our Guest, Lumiere sings, for 10 years we've been resting. So if we do the math, the rose falls on his 21st birthday, which means he laughed at the witch in disguise when he was 10. When he was 10. Yeah, the witch is kind of an asshole. Yes, and also he was a 10 year old boy (laughs) this whole like curse came upon him when he's 10 and where are his parents like who are (laughs) that happens in um the little mermaid too i'm like where are eric's parents like he's a prince but there's no king and queen 
Okay, like let's let's leave that aside <laughs> yeah, because we're, yeah. we don't need to get into like monarchies. But like, also, what is this kingdom? Because it seems like he just rules a castle, but that's it. Like, yeah. there's no kingdom around right. it. Oh, I said, did this town become a democracy overnight? <laughs> and when it or went for- were there like were there other princes who inherited the throne before him? Like, was it a line of succession? You don't know. You don't have but any these, idea. The people in town don't even seem to realize there's a castle there. Weren't they wondering what happened to the royalty? <laughs> like, or just overnight, they're like, where's our ruler? <laughs> <laughs> Poof, we're I'm sorry, they're French. Where is our ruler? <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. Forget it. They're they're French, but only one of them actually speaks with a French accent. So that was also a question for me. It's like, why is he French? Why isn't everyone speaking French? Like, I don't want them all to do French accents, but it just, you know, it's a question that comes up. Uh, The the feather duster is French. And a whore. (laughs) And a whore. Hey, uh, sex positive about feather dusters, please. While we're on the subject of that, Be Our Guest disturbs me because where does the food come from? They're all inanimate objects who don't eat. The only person who would eat would be the beast. So there's just all this food. Like, why isn't it spoiled? Like, why are they wasting it all? He like, doesn't seem like a guy who'd leave the castle to go to a farmer's market. Again, as as gleeful and fun and well choreographed as the Be Our Guest sequence is, like, impressive as it is as animation, it kind of made me see how, like, the side characters in this movie are, again, enabling the kind of delusions of their owner. And... Bell. Okay, so that's another big problem I have with this movie, is that especially during the There's Something There That Wasn't There Before song, it's like, they're terrible <laughs> friends. Like, supposedly they're her friends, but no one tells her about this curse. They're keeping her prisoner, and immediately there's talk that she's the girl that he's gonna fall in love with. So, everything that they're doing is very self-serving, because they want to be changed back into human. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to make this girl, who at that point is a prisoner of a pretty, like, nasty beast man, and they're like, oh, we're we're going to kind of basically sacrifice her and hope that she falls in love with him so that we can get what we want. And then it's kind of unclear how long she's there. I feel like a few months because there's like a seasonal change. It's unclear. And is she even a prisoner? Because when she decides to go, she just leaves. That's another big problem I have with this movie is that the story doesn't hold up just on a sort of basic like why is she there logistical level yeah because she said she would so her word is her bond i guess but no (laughs) like how about about that like (laughs) and then also like why does he want her there i mean obviously because of the curse but like it would make so much more sense if there was a plot reason that like she serves some purpose like even if she was just kind of like there to clean up you know they obviously have a lot of slutty feather dusters to do that for them (laughs) or teach him to read or you know whatever it is like if she serves some sort of purpose why he wanted her there but she doesn't she just is I guess supposed to sit there and not even be in a cage but just sort of just what is the plan like right like I I think that she is a psychological prisoner whether she's physically imprisoned there or not and like to Beast that's what a successful relationship is I feel like the movie just wants it both ways where it's like oh it's too problematic if she's an actual prisoner so we'll kind of make it that she could leave but she doesn't but I think that just makes it confusing like it just doesn't hold up on a story level why would would he even want Belle's dad to be a prisoner there if he doesn't want anyone to bother him? Like, why even have a prisoner? I get that you're, like, taking it out on him, but, like, why even have anyone there? You seem to, like, hate everybody, being, like, a depression. Um, but So, like, why even have anyone there as a prisoner? 
Yeah, exactly. Like, what purpose was he... Like, was he going to be, like, a servant of some kind? Like, then it would at least be like, okay, like, you you need, like, someone there to do a chore. Like, maybe there's something that the various knickknacks can't do that a person would need to do that he could do. But, like, I just wish that there was more justification for, like, why a prisoner needs to be there in the first place so that Belle would at least be serving some sort of function rather than just, like, waiting around for her to fall in love with him, which seems very unlikely. I also just kind of have problems with Belle's character in general because she's set up as a nerd and I think she does have a great like opening number and is set up really well as the thinking girl in this town where like everyone else is. But also the most beautiful girl in the town. (laughs) Well, of course. Beautiful thinking girl. What use as a brain if you're ugly? (laughs) (laughs) But then doesn't do anything with that. She's not smart in the rest of the movie. She doesn't ever come up with a plan um in fact she makes pretty dumb decisions like when she shows the villagers all like hey look it's a beast and then they are like oh we're gonna go kill him and she's like well damn like that's not what i was going for (laughs) yeah she's more just like she's smart because she likes to read and she seems like a good person like she'll take the place of her dad so her dad can be set free and she keeps her word to the beast and she is able to change her mind about him like she doesn't stick to her opinions like she can change but i just there seems to be something wrong there with her character that i i agree with you Like, just something is a little off. Yeah, she just doesn't... Like, this whole second half of the movie, she doesn't really do anything. It's like, the plot is all driven by Gaston, and then, you know, even, like, when she and her father are locked up, it's like, luckily, there's an animated teacup that stowed away to, like, break you out of here. Like, she doesn't come up with a plan. Like, Mm -hmm. it just, like, wish that she did something more active. Like, really, all she's there for is to, like, fall in love with him. Right. All she's there, ultimately, to do is transform him. It's ultimately, like, about the beast's journey, um, and her existence really doesn't extend beyond that, like, ultimately. So, I'm not going to talk about the live-action one very much, because it's trash, (laughs) (laughs) but there was one detail I liked from it that was a change from the original that I was like, well, that sounds nice. The reason that the Beast and Belle bond is because he has this giant library, and he's been pretty much alone for years and he's an educated prince so he actually has read all of these books and hasn't had anyone to talk to about you know these stories and these books and she's a avid reader so they actually bond and connect over something that i thought was a really nice detail because in the broadway show she actually does teach him to read um and in this i think she just he's just nice to her like he saves her life um and then he helps her she helps him get back to the castle and then he like gifts her a library (laughs) like i don't know like i wish there was a little bit more to bond them um and that would have been like a nice little detail that they like oh they actually have something in common Mm -hmm. like they are like a good match yeah this one it feels like that musical number with the snow and there's something there that wasn't there before it feels like unlike most disney movies where the songs so perfectly tell the story and feel like a piece of the movie that one feels like it's really trying to tell a story that's actually not there yeah it's like we have to make a dime for this to turn on yeah (laughs) there's that song okay done (laughs) yeah and yeah it doesn't it makes the real formation of the like love story of that seem kind of unbelievable to me 
And it also just, like, the, the characters are all sitting there like, well, who would have thought? And it's like, uh, this was the plan all along. You are manipulating this woman into, like, trying to fall for him. So, like, don't act all innocent now, like, Mrs. Potts. You're, you're, a, you're a nasty bitch. Yeah, Mrs. Potts is gaslighting us all. She's also, what, like, 60 with, like, a four-year-old son? Yeah, what's that about? Oh, and I am also really disturbed by the neglect of the rest of her children. Chip is around all the time, but she has all these other kids that are in a cupboard the entire time and never speak. <laughs> and even in the end, we're like, we never see them turn. Like, it's just a bunch of, like, other teacups. So when she's, like, in with your brothers and sisters, oh, yeah. Chip That's is right. very clearly the favorite. Obviously, he gets eyes and a mouth. <laughs> How come some of them have eyes and mouths and others don't get eyes and mouths? <laughs> they all what started... What kind of hell are they living They all in? started with faces, but some <laughs> lost the right... I also wrote a note um, that I will just read verbatim, um, which is Angela Lansbury and the advent of star fucking. (laughs) Excuse me? We start The Little Mermaid with no celebrity voices, and then, like, (laughs) the celebrity voices creep in one by one throughout these movies. So, like, here we've got Angela Lansbury, who's, like, kind of a Disney icon, I think, already at this point. She was in, like, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And so, like, she's not really a distracting celebrity in this, but just, you know, noting that they've stuck a little star Jerry Orbach. Um, Jerry Orbach was a legend. Don't discount Jerry Orbach. I'm discounting Jerry Orbach. <laughs> we should talk about the legendary ballroom dance scene. Yes. I We watched this one together, and I just remember being like, rewinding the shot so we could see, like, the camera <laughs> swoop down from the chandelier. Like, that is a, that's, I mean, it's gorgeous. That's, like, things like this, like, we're we're complaining about all these things, but like so many touches like that are just so like pop culture classic. It was one of the was it the very first film like animated film to use CGI backgrounds, or was it just one of the first? Uh, it was the first to do something computery. Like I feel like a lot of these <laughs> movies were the first to do That's something, and we're not very good at articulating what it is. So <laughs> there are a lot of moments of this film that work and are really beautiful. It's just like unfortunately, it's like the more you like kind of look into them, the less they hold up. One thing we kind of briefly touched on, but really started to become more obvious to me, is how in the in the universe of Disney characters, your moral worth inside is always reflected in how you look outside. So, like, Beast's curse is to look ugly and be this hulking, monstrous person. You know, like, it gets a lot more obvious in other Disney movies, and it's not like this wasn't kind of a thread through, you know, Snow White and any of the other Disney movies that have witches in them. Um, But I think it becomes a lot more overt now. Yeah, uh, this movie does do one kind of interesting thing on that note by making the hot guy the villain. Like, Gaston sort of looks like the typical Disney prince, and the movie has a lot of fun kind of making fun of just how strapping and princely he thinks he is, even though he's not technically a prince. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think that that's good. It would be a stronger message if the Beast weren't also a prince who then turns into a hot guy at the end for her so it's like like again i don't know that this needed to be like a prince and princess story really like right but i guess that's just the default of these movies like it it almost just feels like they didn't even ask like should this be a princess movie it's (laughs) like of course princesses like i want to talk about gaston okay he's great I think he's just so much fun. So much fun. I love the voice acting of Gaston. I I love love the the singing voice of Gaston. I love the song Gaston. Uh, I (laughs) think no one fights like Gaston. Yeah, I I would put that up there as one of the great villain songs. Like, it's just so much fun. And usually, like, villain songs are a little bit 
they're they can be fun but and mischievous but this is just like talking just talking about the villain versus this is my evil plan it's a show-stopping number <laughs> i feel like my favorite line in that is i use antlers for all of my decorating <laughs> <laughs> gaston what a pleasant surprise isn't it though i'm just full of surprises you know bell there's not a girl in town who wouldn't love to be in your shoes this is the day hmm. <clears throat> ah. this is the day your dreams come true what do you know about my dreams gaston plenty here picture this a rustic hunting lodge my latest kill roasting on the fire and my little wife massaging my feet well, the little ones play on the floor with the dogs. We'll have six or seven. Dogs? No, Belle. Strapping boys like me. Imagine that. Do you know who that little wife will be? Let me think. You, Belle. Gaston, I'm... I'm... speechless. I really don't know what to say. <laughs> say you'll marry me. I'm very sorry, Gaston, but... But... I just don't deserve you. Whoa. Yeah, I think, like, he's a very different villain than I can even think of any villain after him. He just really stands out because he's, on paper, would be a good guy and could easily be the hero of this movie. And yet, it is kind of subversive for them to play the, like, hot guy as the bad guy, which is usually, like Seth said, it's like, hot equals good and ugly equals bad and almost all other villains in these movies are sinister looking and he's someone who he does have very sharp teeth uh, <laughs> in a few points which uh, and Belle also has very sharp fingernails I don't know if anyone else noticed this but she could slash with the best of them if well, she tried to in a tiny note in this movie when people get cut they bleed that's true there is a little blood in this which I think yeah. you know works yeah Oh, I really like the character design of the Beast in particular, because I think that would be a very hard character design. Like, we know what he looks like now, but I feel like designing him was probably mm -hmm. a challenge, because you have to make him kind of scary, but likable looking. He has to evolve into a hero. He has like, to be extremely fuckable. <laughs> he looks much better as a Beast than he does at the Prince at the end. Yeah. yeah. He does not make a cute prince. <laughs> Yeah, I also wanted to bring that up. I'm glad you reminded me. Um, just, like, the way that he also evolves. Like, when you first see him, he has, like, spikes. His hair is spiking up in the back, and he's very menacing. But, yeah, I mean, they did obviously go through a lot of trouble designing the beasts. And, like, there were beasts that looked too cute and beasts that looked too mean. And they, I think they did find, like, the perfect medium where he really works as a character. And, yeah, you kind of feel the loss when he turns into a, a person. Like, mm -hmm. I, I think it's, he's so it's basic. disappointing. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> he's a basic bitch at the end. <laughs> <laughs> He went th from a goth daddy to a basic bitch. <laughs> goth daddy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to Aladdin. Hey, clever waste in the old bazaar. Hey, you let us through. It's a bright new star. Oh, come be the first on your block to meet his eye. Make way, here he comes. Ring bells, bang the drum. Are you gonna love this guy? Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa. Genuflect, show some respect down on one knee. Now try your best to stay calm. Brush up your Sunday salon. Then come and meet his spectacular coterie. 
Aladdin was released November 25th, 1992. It was directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, written by Ron Clements, John Musker, Ted Elliott, and Terry Rossio, based off the folktale Aladdin and the Magic Lamp from the collection 1001 Nights. Songs are by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Howard Ashman died of AIDS-related complications halfway through production, and Tim Rice took over Lyris' duties after his passing. The budget was $28 million, and the box office was $504 million. So we just keep going up and up and up and up and up. It was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Song for Friend Like Me, Best Sound, and Best Sound Editing. It won the Oscar for Best Song for A Whole New World and Best Score. A Whole New World, by the way, is the only Disney song to win a Grammy for Song of the Year. Aladdin got 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, one review um, from Rita Kempley, our favorite. Back on the Rita beat. <laughs> she wrote at the time, Aladdin is a magic carpet ride, a flight aboard, a supersonic little Persian steered by all the wishes that ever were. Disney quite simply has outdone itself with this marvelous adaptation of the ancient fairy tale. Wait, Rita's riding in a little Persian man? What's yeah, going it on? said a supersonic little Persian. I guess that wow. meant rug. Persian yeah. rug. I would guess. I would guess she's inferring. <laughs> but she didn't say. Howard Ashman, by the way, wrote Friend Like Me, Arabian Nights, and Prince Ali. Um, a lot of that he wrote on his deathbed. Um, wow. I think that um, one of the behind the scenes I saw somewhere was that he was in the hospital writing Prince Ali like from his hospital bed. Yeah, um, he was very sick during um, most of Beauty and the Beast as well, and yet was still hugely influential on it and would, you know, kind of deliver not only, like, the lyrics themselves, but, like, performance notes. Like, Paige O'Hara, who plays Belle, noted that he, you know, gave her direction to be more, like, Streisandy, and that's something there that wasn't there before song. And so, like, he was still... Was during Alarming! Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> and just because we haven't, like, mentioned him, I don't think quite enough relative to how influential he was is like although he was like a lyricist which isn't necessarily the position of the most power you know in in animation or musicals necessarily he did have so much influence over all of these yeah, first three movies he was a producer on them and yeah there is a um a documentary called howard coming out on streaming later this year i believe i would have liked to have seen it in time for this but uh check it out yeah, he, just everyone who made any of these movies, like, has nothing but, like, praise for him. So I think maybe more than anyone else, he's kind of the author of these first three movies. Mm-hmm. The Golden Globes created a special achievement award just to give Robin Williams for his voiceover work in the movie. Speaking of Robin Williams, Robin Williams <laughs> voiced the genie for SAG scale pay, $75,000, instead of his asking fee of $8 million. His one condition was that his, not his name or image be used for marketing and his character not take more than 25% of space on advertising artwork. They didn't listen to him at all. <laughs> they did whatever they wanted. They put a genie all over the poster. They used his image however they wanted. He was not happy. They apologized apologized by sending him a Pablo Picasso painting worth more than one million, but it didn't really smooth things over. (laughs) That's really weird. Um, I was watching some special features from Aladdin, and it must have been, I think, after he died, but there was very little mention of him, (laughs) and he did not contribute to that in one way or another. So it was odd that he's so remembered as, like, like you think of Aladdin, you think of Robin Williams yeah. first and foremost. It did seem like there was some kind of like distance between him and the rest of the creative team. Yeah. I mean, they shouldn't have promised him that. Or, I mean, pay him more than scale, <laughs> at least. Maybe not $8 million, but like... Yeah. Some, you know, like <laughs> Actors do that for like an indie movie. I don't know why you would do that for a Disney movie yeah. at this point in their history. Yeah. Um, 
There was some controversy at the time. One of the verses of the opening song, Arabian Nights, was altered following complaints from the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. The lyrics were changed from where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face to where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense. (laughs) Wait, wasn't that change made for the new movie? Nope. It was made for the re-releases and and VHS release of Aladdin. Yeah, it was for the VHS release. They changed it. There were other changes made, too. Um, And also, I read that Howard Ashman actually had submitted alternate lyrics for all of those ahead of time. Hmm. Because he kind of sensed there might be controversy about it. Well, he was right. (laughs) All right, let's talk about Aladdin. (laughs) (laughs) Seth. (laughs) I think from the tiny little guy in the intro to the movie onward, the whole movie is racist. (laughs) Specifically, it's Orientalist. It just condenses the entire Middle East to a set of very generic stereotypes about barbarism and kind of just exoticism in a general sense. I think it makes beautiful use of some of those images and some of those things. But it doesn't much seem to me like something that's honestly trying to place its audience in the quote-unquote like Arab world or like relate any real kind of experience to people. I remember so much of this movie, though. (laughs) (laughs) I remember every single frame of this movie, basically. I was totally entertained watching this movie. It's basically a farce or a meta comedy. It's way more meta than than any movie I think Disney has released thus far at this point. And I think the jokes work. God bless Robin Williams. Like, who else would have done this part? It would have been... Will Smith. (laughs) No, 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 no. It would have been such a different movie if anyone else. Tone-wise, because when you're getting Robin Williams, he comes with a certain tone. (laughs) Like, especially comedy Robin Williams. Ten thousand years will give you such a crick in the neck. Hang on a second. Does it feel good to be out of there? I'm telling you, nice to be back, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, where are you from? What's your name? Uh, uh, Aladdin. Aladdin. Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al or maybe just Din? Or how about Laddie? Sounds like here, boy. Come on, Laddie. <laughs> and I feel like the movie matches that tone well. When even when he's not on screen, it's very over the top, very funny. It's jokey and it's fun. It's entertaining. It's beautiful. I think if it were made today, it would be different. And even if Robin Williams was still alive, I think... Actually, it wouldn't be, because it was made, and it was exactly the same. No. (laughs) Animated movie, not... (laughs) I think that they... Could not let that go. (laughs) Moana came out a few years ago. Nearly every voice actor in that movie is from... Is like a Pacific Islander, you know, heritage. I think they are very much trying to be considerate of things like that now. Sometimes they fail, but I think mostly that they're trying to be considerate and respectful of cultures and actually show, like, a culture for what it is. Like, I know it's Pixar, but, like, Coco is very much celebrating Mexican culture. I don't think they're really celebrating... Middle Eastern culture. This is a, a made-up place. Agrabah. Yeah, it's a made-up place. Um, that I mean, it's... At that time, this was not in anybody's headspace. <laughs> like, I saw the behind-the-scenes of voiceover actors, like, doing the lines, and it's like, look at all these white people! <laughs> oh, and, and, and even just, like, to drill in specifically, the voice of Jasmine... 
Um, I think like we watched this together and all of us very quickly in started being like, wait, did they overdub this with a different actor's voice? It was just, especially now rewatching it, her voice is so white. It is such a white voice. All of them and, are white, though. All of them. Well, but getting very briefly into the animation style, in Aladdin specifically, the good characters are all lighter skinned, and the evil characters are darker skinned and have more curved, prominent noses and more sharp facial features. Aladdin seems tan to me. <laughs> he's really, like, he's, he's very really white light looking, but I feel like he's, he's tan. He's really light. But I agree with you. The more caricatureness is for the other villain characters. And, and, and the villains are other eyes. Like, they're. Uh, I think they're intentionally made to look more threatening to a mainstream audience, yeah. which translates as darker skinned. Yeah. yeah, I think this stands out in contrast to The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, which are Disney princess movies. And this was a boy movie, you know, <laughs> you know, not to gender everything too much, but it has a male protagonist and is just more humor driven. It's and, like a buddy comedy. Yeah. Did you like it? Did you like watching the movie? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have a hard time giving like an unqualified answer on that. I liked, I liked it. I liked watching it. Thought it was entertaining. Still, I liked a lot of things about it. In some ways, I like certain things about it more than I like some of these other movies. I think that the character of Aladdin is really fun and well done, and I really actually like the romance between him and Jasmine. I think that there's a lot of like screwball comedy between the two of them that works really well, just with like mistaken identities and. And the fact that he isn't a prince and is coming from not just like sort of a baseline like Belle was, but that he's like actually poor and, and the contrast between that and the palace life, I think actually works really well and adds a lot of texture to their romance. And I thought that she held up really well as a Disney princess. Once you get past her voice, which is very high and very Minnie Mouse-like, I thought that she had a lot of agency relative to other Disney princesses at the time where she, yes, she ends up married uh to a Prince E character, but she does also rail against that trope, at least, and is... I found her actually to be kind of smart, and she, you know, she kind of sees through him and his ruse. He's trying to trick her, so that all worked pretty well for me. Robin Williams is... uh, a little Robin Williams goes a long way. And this movie does have a little in a way because he doesn't show up until like half an hour in or something like that. But I don't know. I just feel like he kind of runs away with the movie and that he's very razzle-dazzle. And yet, like, as a story, there's just there's not a whole lot there after, I think, the opening act. I agree, especially with that last point. I don't think anything Jafar can do in a supervillainy kind of capacity has anywhere near the kind of energy or excitement or interest for me than anything Robin Williams is doing. Even when Robin Robin Williams is just literally making like Disney jokes, there are so many, speaking of metal, like there are so many Disney references. Um, But Chris, I do want to take issue with what you're saying about Jasmine, because I don't think she has agency. I think she has power. She is part of a monarchical system And again, ultimately, what all of these princess characters have is unquestioned power that they got, not because they're smart, not because they're independently minded, minded, but because they were born powerful and they were born rich. I think Jasmine is just as kind of blandly rendered as any of the other princesses in these stories. Um, I think the basis of her and Aladdin's chemistry is more the doing of the magic of the genie, making Aladdin seem like a rich and powerful prince. 
But um, she doesn't really care about that. Yeah, she, they meet before that, and that's when I find that they have the best chemistry and that it's actually, like, when he tries to impress her that it doesn't work. So I, I liked that they met before that and that she kind of fell for him even before. When he was being himself. Yeah. Okay, and I can I can grant that to an extent. I, I definitely think that there is some grounding to their kind of relationship together. But again, rewatching this movie and rewatching all of these movies together, it disappointed me how much of the magic in Disney animated movies is geared toward producing... Uh, suitable and accepting female mates for men. Um, whether that's like a genie creating hot women for Aladdin that are like m- magic made up women or like love potions or love spells or a beast who can only be freed by true love's kiss. Like so much of this is about pairing up men with women. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that goes way further back than these movies. I mean, they're all based on previous properties that, in one way or another, kind of explore that. And just, like, in general, fairy tales and and folklore does that. Or just stories. I think that these stories are trying to be action and romance and a lot of things at once. And one of those things is romance, like that there will be a celebration of, you know, heterosexual (laughs) monogamy. Sure, but I think (laughs) Disney in particular, and especially during this era of its animation, is telling stories that do kind of shore up a society that is patriarchal, white supremacist, or at least almost completely white. And even when there are exceptions, like in this case, where there are quote-unquote Middle Eastern characters, we're still talking about a patriarchal monarchy and even the kind of exceptional characters and exceptional women who, you know, stir up the pot, definitely, like Jasmine absolutely like stirs up the pot or whatever, but at the end of the day, you know she's going to inherit that throne or take on that power. Um, And ultimately, even these exceptional princesses aren't ones who are pushing to overturn the system. They're not pushing to change everything. In my mind, they're not really all that rebellious at the end of it. I mean, I agree with you. I think I was judging her within a context of these films rather than, like, against Gloria Steinem or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, next to her, maybe she doesn't fare quite so well on the feminist scale. Um, I I found it odd, in a way, that forced marriage or arranged marriage was such a theme in all four of these movies. Probably the least so in The Little Mermaid, but there's still sort of an element of that with Eric. Like, you know, like, find, a, find a woman. Right. And much more explicitly in, like, the rest of them. And these movies were made in, you know, mostly the 90s. It's like, that was <laughs> really a big theme in the 90s. So I found it weird that it was so prevalent in these movies. And our generation now is, like, much more reluctant to get married than previous generations and it's like we were raised on sort of all these movies where Ariel, Belle, and Jasmine all have pretty much very similar arcs that they're all feeling trapped you know and that they're all in some ways making feminist overtures like compared to Snow White and Sleeping Beauty who didn't feel trapped at all you know and and were just like happily let's get married you know let's find a prince and so this was like I guess the 90s version of feminism where it's like they have independent thoughts but they still end up, you know, going right. back and, and doing the quote-unquote right thing, you know, and, and getting married to a handsome prince. So I found that a little bit disappointing, and yet I did at least find Jasmine, I guess, to be, of the three, the one who railed the most against that. Can we talk about Aladdin and why he, why is he allowed, and only he allowed, in the Cave of Wonders? Like, he's it? Like, why? Why him? 
Have you seen his sexy eyebrows? <laughs> is that it? Like, I think that's it. I think I it's think a sexy mouth. It. I find that Aladdin has a very strangely sexy mouth. Not for his chest. Not his chest. No, it's, this it's is a bit of mouth. a side note. But Aladdin was my first Disney dreamboat. <laughs> he was the, the first. He's the dreamboat of these four. He really was. But to go back to your question, I don't know if there's ever a plot reason given why he's the only one he's who could go in. The diamond in the rough, which basically means like you stand out from the crowd like you're like you stand out for some special reason uh, which is a term I did not know growing up I never knew what they were saying then until I was much older um, but yeah I wish there was a reason why like is this all just fate and they can see into the future and be like Aladdin is going to be a good guy so he's the one that decides to be in the cave of wonders because he'll let the genie free and you know like I just I wish that there was a reason why him and him alone Again, I think it's kind of like the love at first sight thing. Uh, it's hard to tell if these movies are about like fate or destiny, or if they're about how these different characters' choices bring them to this to this particular end. Um, but I also think, like we've been going back to, like the fact that it's a fairy tale means that they kind of can get away with not explaining that. Yeah. Even more so than I found, like, sort of the true love or, like, marriage ending to these movies problematic is I noticed in this one in particular just that being rich is the solution to everyone's problems. Mm -hmm. Like, no matter what happens, like, everyone just basically ends up with their own castle and and rich. And it's it's just a little, like, it's a weird message to send to kids. Like, in, you know, some of these movies, maybe it's necessary to have princes and princesses, but it it was just like, couldn't they just, you know, live happily in in a nice little (laughs) adobe somewhere i have a controversial opinion maybe uh prince ali is the best song in the movie fight me or or no (laughs) i think it's a great song i mean i I would say a whole new world does a whole lot of work in this movie (laughs) because i think the rest of the movie doesn't have sort of that sweeping element that it's much more jokey it's a heavy lift for a little persian (laughs) (laughs) thank you rita (laughs) and i think probably more than any other one of these movies like that song sells romance and it's mm-hmm. no wonder it like it won the oscar and won the grammy mm-hmm. you know it's like i think it's a great romantic pop song even aside from this movie it's just like a very iconic song and and very like universal even though it takes place on a magic carpet like it, it works like outside of the movie's context i think but like i was just thinking like without that song I, i'm not sure this movie would work at all just because like <laughs> would you buy that they're really falling for each other like I don't know more than anything else I just felt like that one song was kind of the linchpin that made the rest of this movie like yep. work like it has a different tone than the rest of the movie and I think without like kind of changing that tone up kind of midway through this movie might just be like way too much zaniness and not enough like kind of character and, and romance it bothers me that Jafar doesn't get a villain song he gets like a reprise of Prince Ali which is not enough there's a lack of villain song in this movie. Yeah, I think in a way, like, the genie steals, like, the villain role yeah. in this movie. But I do wish that Jafar also had a villain song, which might actually solve this problem, but also just, like, more to do. Like, he has a pretty good character design, and he's like, starts off interesting, but it just doesn't really go anywhere, I don't think. Yeah, and it's like his one trick is hypnotizing the king, and that's about it. Ah, uh, It's time for The Lion King. Hey, Uncle Scar, guess what? I despise guessing games. I'm gonna be king of Pride Rock. Oh, goody. 
My dad just showed me the whole kingdom. And I'm gonna rule it all. <laughs> yes. Well, forgive me for not leaping for joy. I'm bad back, you know. Uncle Scar, when I'm king, what'll that make you? A monkey's uncle. <laughs> You're so weird. You have no idea. The Lion King was released June 24th, 1994. It was directed by Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff. Written by Irene Mechie, Jonathan Roberts, and Linda Wolverton. Possibly maybe based off the Japanese anime TV series Kimba the White Lion. But Disney denies ever hearing about it, despite the fact one of the directors lived in Tokyo in the 80s when it was on primetime television. And it's exactly like it. <laughs> the score is by Hans Zimmer. The songs are by Elton John and Tim Rice. The budget was $45 million, And the box office was 968 million. Holy shit. Wow. (laughs) It remains the highest grossing traditionally animated film of all time. The Lion King was nominated for four Oscars. Best song for Hakuna Matata and Circle of Life. It won best song for Can You Feel the Love Tonight and won best score. So all four of these movies won best score, (laughs) which is really interesting. And best song. What am I talking about? They all won best song as well. (laughs) On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 93%. Reviews were pretty much entirely positive. Jay Boyer at the Orlando Sentinel said, this is getting a little monotonous, but yes, it's another instant classic. (laughs) (laughs) And Jay Carr from the Boston Globe said at the time, this is an instant classic, primal and immediate in its depiction of the death of a parent, firmly anchored in the the Disney style, while extending its boundaries with arresting new perspectives and a tough-mindedness simply not possible to its most obvious ancestors Bambi and the Jungle Book. So The Lion King and Pocahontas were being produced at the same time. Everyone who was like, you know, a big wig animator um, wanted to get onto the Pocahontas train. (laughs) They thought that was going to be the big hit. Um, They actually had some sort of like, um, not a meet and greet, but like they, they had like two lunch parties where they're like this is the pocahontas area this is the lion king area let's battle (laughs) (laughs) like development artwork and what the story is going to be and people would pick what they want to what project they want to work on and everyone went to pocahontas and the people that were on lion king had to like beg people please be on lion king so a lot of the people that went to lion king were people that were in the positions for the first time like leading something for the first time or people that got their first chance at something they were the b group yeah they were the b group that does seem insane now. <laughs> yeah. It really does. It does. But, like, so, for context, I guess, like, the uh, the previous three movies had all been, like, people people movies. It had been a long time since, like, there was a big animal hit, I guess. Yeah. Um, and Oliver and, and Company didn't do great. And The Lion King was the first of these movies, I think, not based on any previous material, except for maybe a Tokyo show. Or was it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but... Uh, at least uh, acknowledged. I guess, like if you if you imagine the Lion King, but you don't actually have the visuals in front of you, maybe it sounds like kind of a weird off kilter B movie. Yeah, and I mean, this was the very very beginning, so there probably was something about this B team coming in that wouldn't have led a project otherwise. That brought something to the project that wouldn't have been there had they not been there. Also, um, I was watching some special features on the blu-ray 
And the original story was very different than what they came up with. So maybe based on that story, I can kind of uh, imagine. What was the original story? I, I remember. I can't. Like Simba never went away. Like he just grew up with Scar and was like sort of like a bratty teenager, basically, and, and hmm. ended up, I guess, like taking the throne. But like Pumbaa and Timon were just like his friends from childhood and stuff. So I think it had less of an epic scope in that way. Yeah, that definitely sounds like it. So what did you guys think of watching The Lion King? I had a really good time with this movie. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) The end. (laughs) Seth? (laughs) I mostly agree. Um, This is suck. (laughs) It's just so beautifully done on every level, I think. In a way that, like, I think that Little Mermaid, like, started off this era in a way where there was no particular set formula in place, but it has the assuredness of something that did. Like, I think this is something that is kind of calibrated from top to bottom and, like, firing on all cylinders and, like, a well-oiled machine. The stakes of it are so, like, Joseph Campbell, like, hero's journey-ish. Chris, like, you were describing the pitch, like, I think the the episode kind of stakes of becoming an outcast, a literal outcast of the pride and like Simba's journey of like being self-exiled and kind of working his way back and getting drawn back into the ultimate battle of good and evil. I think that story stuff is so well done. But then I also think that the voice acting in this, especially Jeremy Irons' Scar and the kind of animation style, all those elements really just work together so well. I just think this is a beautifully done and still very good animated movie. Yeah, I guess I'll expand a little on my (laughs) original thought of it's good. Uh, I think that in a weird way, this has a lot in common with The Little Mermaid made and that it's another sort of ecosystem that's paid very thorough attention to. It definitely has roots in in Bambi and I think in a lot of ways is a bit of a remake of Bambi with sort of a, you know, 90s twist. But like again, like The Little Mermaid, it just has kind of a great love song, a great funny song, a great villain song. It just is firing on all of those cylinders and maybe because it's lions, I don't know, just the story works pretty well. Like there's not a lot of like holes to poke in this one, unlike Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin to an extent where there's not a real problematic element when there's lions. I guess you could maybe um, complain about the prominence of white actors voicing lions, which I actually think is kind of a silly controversy because they're they're lions. And but. Well, and I do have to say, like, Scar is a darker lion than the other ones, and he is the evil character. But yeah, like, Chris, I, I was kind of not oversensitive, but I was, like, kind of sensitive to what way this would play now, especially this being set in ostensibly Africa, you know? Um, But again, I think because it's not a human story, um, because it is, like, in the context of lions and in the context of the pride and that community structure, um, I I think that story just totally comes across and, and resonates, And I think what this movie does so well that Aladdin did not is incorporate a sense of, like, African music and African culture into it, where I don't know exactly what they did behind the scenes, but it feels like they consulted with people who knew, you know, that kind of culture, even though it is a lion culture, which is not a real culture. But it feels like they really worked that into the story, which I think was missing from Aladdin, where it was coming from a very outsider point of view of how white people are perceiving this 
this world, whereas this felt, whether or not it actually was, much more authentically like rooted in that world. Becky, did you still like this movie? Just a little bit. I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating. So you were disappointed. Not even exaggerating. I think the opening is the best thing ever made. Oh, like, let's, let's just briefly pause on that, because I, I think... Even at the time when I first saw it in the theater, and especially now rewatching it, like it does not get better than that opening sequence. It's the greatest it opening of anything. They know what they're doing. That, <laughs> that smash yeah. to title is like the fucking lion. I remember like, being in the theater watching yeah. that, and the whole audience was just like, their breath was taken oh, yeah. away. It was the most like Disney mic drop moment in history. <laughs> mic drop, it definitely. Really absolutely is. The fucking sun. Still, just the sun. It and still the, works and the, perfectly. And the African music. And it's just gorgeous. It's the best thing ever made. Um, when they smash to Lion King, they, it might as well just be like, fuck yeah. It like, been just, that should be the end Say my credits. name, bitch. <laughs> that could have just been the end credits. Yeah. It, it could just end then. This movie has the greatest all-time score of any Disney movie, and maybe any movie. <laughs> this is the best script in a Disney movie yet. This is one of the scariest villains in a Disney movie because you really think he might murder you to get what he wants or have somebody else murder you. Um, I love this movie so much. <laughs> I might start crying. <laughs> oh, we'll have some Kleenex. <laughs> this movie is amazing. And I watched it with my husband who hadn't watched it in years and years and years. And in the very big, like we watched the opening scene being like, like he clapped. <laughs> like when, it, you know what I mean? I saluted. Yeah. I'm not gonna and, lie. <laughs> and then we started like, you know, talking, like joking a little. And then like that went away and we were like watching the movie. Like it was silent. <laughs> we we're watching this movie. Oh, yeah. I love everything about it. I think it is perfect. I mean, pick something like <laughs> off the top of my head, like the, I just can't wait to be King sequence. It was such a good idea to like make it this fantasy sequence where all the colors go like crazy and you know zebras are green and giraffes are purple and do you know what like it just brings such imagination to a a child's fantasy sequence it's choreographed like a busby berkeley musical like Mm -hmm. it's just so beautifully pulling in kind of classic hollywood even golden era hollywood cinematic tropes yeah yeah, it's very Be Our Guest, but in a way that you don't have to take quite as literally as Be Our Guest, because we had a lot of questions <laughs> surrounding right. Be Our Guest, whereas right. this is much more, like, it goes into that Busby Berkeley thing, and then at the end it, like, cuts back really, like, in this kind of smash cut to the rhino sitting on Zazu, mm-hmm. and you realize, again, that it was kind of, kind of all a fantasy, and it, it works so much better, I think, than that number, even though it's going for the same thing. And I think it's also benefited by not really requiring any kind of magic. Like, in this movie, mortality has real stakes. There's no wizard that's going to bring you back. There's no love potion that's going to make someone fall in love with you. Like, it's it's funny because it's like it's a movie about animals, not humans, but there is like a real heavy, heavy sense of mortality and death throughout this movie. Let's talk about that scene. You know which one. (laughs) (laughs) You know the one we're talking about. Mufasa dying. It's so beautifully done. Like, the whole sequence with the wildebeest coming down the edge and the chase like the tension this movie is really well directed like 
gorgeous shots, gorgeous composition. And you just really feel that weight of him realizing his father is dead. And it's interesting, we watched Bambi recently and how Bambi's mom dies off camera. It's still very upsetting, but Bambi has to move on very quickly. And in this, like, you actually see the child's, like, cuddle up next to their dead parent and deal with that. And it's just, like, heartbreaking. (laughs) Like, it's just so well done. Dad? Dad, come on. Get up. Dad. We gotta go home. It's so well done in a movie that has, like, very comedic moments with Timon and Pumbaa. Like, it somehow just manages to, like, balance this tone with, like, heavy, heavy scenes like Mufasa's death and then scenes like Hakuna Matata. Yeah, what struck me about that was mostly just that, like, the world to be seen feels like a genuine action scene. Unlike a lot of animated movies, which have, like, sort of action, but it still feels like a cartoon. You know, like, this felt like, whoa, like, what's happening here? Like, you're really, like watching it the way that you would like watch Die Hard or something Mm -hmm. like that. This movie just astounds me. I just think it's so well made. Mufasa's ghost cloud thing is so beautifully designed. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the ghost cloud. Just everything. I just love it. I noticed this time the difference between like Mufasa's design and Scar's design, even though they're both adult lions, just the way that they compare and contrast to each other where Mufasa is very grand and serious and commanding and then like Scar is like kind of like main and like gnarled and, gnarled and, and like sharp. has a lot more curves yeah, at, like or just angular angular yeah um, and he has green eyes green and not, eye- like, brown eyes yeah yeah the eyes the eyes in this movie were actually were surprisingly compelling like revisiting it like the i felt like the animation did a really great job of bringing that to life yeah don't you want to see emotion in a, in a lion's face yeah, absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I don't know why we need a quote-unquote live-action Lion King. It's not live-action, even. Nope. <laughs> that hits right into one of my unexpected but unsurprising notes for re-watching this movie. I really think that there's no way that this movie can work as a quote-unquote live-action or photorealistic CGI no. movie. No. Like, I really don't. I think that The Lion King needed to be animated for these animals and all the choreography of it to really work. Yeah, to emote. <laughs> so yeah. they have like faces that are cartoons so they can emote. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's a different situation as in something like Beauty and the Beast where you're designing an original character from the ground up. The animators in this case were having to figure out their storytelling, bouncing off things that are real life creatures that everyone knows the mm-hmm. faces of. Yeah. And so, in some ways, I think that's as heavy a lift, if not more so. But I just think that they pulled it off so well in this movie that it's really no surprise that it stands as a classic in the way that it does. Yeah, this movie has a really great villain entrance, I think, with Scar, where it's a mouse. (laughs) So, maybe kind of a meta joke there, but then this paw just, like, comes in. And I think that's another, like, great metaphor for his character, that, like, he treats everyone, you know, like, he's the cat 
and they're the mouse, you know, that he thinks he's so much smarter than everyone, and he kind of is, or at least he's much more diabolical than everyone else. I don't think it can be understated how great Jeremy Irons is as a oh villain. Oh my god. Um, definitely just... up there with the best Disney villains. And yeah, like, it, it's great that everything he does is manipulative. It's not magic. He's not exerting any power over anyone. It's just sort of mind games that he's playing mm-hmm. with Simba. And great villain song. Definitely one of the best. I think for me was the highlight of this movie. Be prepared. Uh, maybe closet gay Disney villain anthem. Oh, there's some real what? there's some real closet queen vibes going on here. Why? There is some pings on the dar, Becky. But why? I just feel like he's playing it as like the black sheep of the family. He's camped it up to a million percent. Like even for Jeremy Irons. He this feels is... like the ostracized gay uncle. Doesn't mean yeah. that he's gay. He could be ostracized for a Becky, number of reasons. He's a confirmed bachelor <laughs> lion. I think we can all draw the inference. Um, my evidence is the way he says sensational news and sensational does like a, news. Yeah. That, that's your evidence. That's my evidence, and it is also proof. <laughs> Case closed. I re rewatched this movie pretty much just to see Jeremy Irons and like focus on that performance. Like the voice that all the voice acting is fantastic. JTT. Even JTT, I think, does a really good job. Does um, good also job. does a really good job. This might be also a reason why I was so obsessed with this movie. Is <laughs> because of JTT? You just think? A little, that bit, out there. a little bit? A little bit? Not a surprise. <laughs> We're just going to repost the same Tiger Beat covers yeah. because of this, except we should Photoshop Lion should be a lion. Tiger. <laughs> lion Beat. <laughs> lions, lions, and more lions. That's <laughs> lions a lot. Lions have been a, a lions big galore. Theme. <laughs> so I really like all the African names of the characters. There's no Jim. <laughs> there's no. There's no Sally. Like they're all they're all African names. Like it's cool. I like them. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> I just wanted to call that out. Like they could have named them anything, but they chose to name them all African names. Yeah, it worked. It just builds a sense of place, which. I think the animation also does really well is it feels authentic even though obviously this is not how real lions behave <laughs> no no and and again i guess to, not to mention the the remake too much but it's just like this is already like portraying like a real world but in a stylized way and when you like try and make it more real it's like what are you what are you what hoping are you to accomplish who yeah. wants that um, who wants realistic lion king millions of people who will go see I it. would rather see them singing and dancing on top of a hippo than than just being realistic singing. <laughs> Dear Hollywood, more dancing on hippos. Whatever, let's move there on. Is no, no, there is no justification for it. I remember being in the theater, the whole first scene of Timon and Pumbaa when they see Simba is kind of like passed out and it's like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and like this tonal change from something sad to something funny and it was, you know, just going back and forth, and then they, like, go out on a joke, and I remember the whole audience, like, dying laughing. It was just jarring in a, in a good way, like, very unexpected. Hey, he looks blue. I'd say brownish gold. No, no, no. I mean, he's depressed. Oh. Kid, what's eating you? Nothing. He's at the top of the food chain. <laughs> the food chain! <laughs> So, where you from? Who cares? I can't go back. Ah, you're an outcast. That's great. So are we. What'd you do, kid? Something terrible, but I don't want to talk about it. Good. We don't want to hear about it. Come on, Timon. Anything we can do? 
Not unless you can change the past. You know, kid, in times like this, my buddy Timon here says you gotta put your behind in your past. No, no, uh, no. I mean, amateur. Lie down before you hurt yourself. Yeah, Timon and Pumbaa are big scene stealers in a movie that is already, like, kind of stealing each scene by scene. <laughs> and they work really well. For me, like, the juvenile humor, like, my reaction to this movie when they're on is a little embarrassed, just because I think I was at a weird age where, I, like, I found them funny, but I also was slightly aware of how, like, kind of for kids their humor was in a way. Some of the juvenile humor, like, kind of is what pulls me out of the movie just like where it's like so obviously pitched to the audience that i just i think it works really well and it is really funny but it also like in a way breaks the fourth wall for me more than i really wanted to Hmm. Yeah, I think it's some of the best sidekickery in any of these movies. <laughs> the other thing was, I feel like there was actually space in this movie for an extra, like, couple of minutes. Like, I feel like it's almost, like, too tight, where I kind of wanted a little bit more of Simba's life with T- Timon and Pumbaa, which is basically all told throughout the course of the Hakuna Matata song. And then at the end of that song, we're basically to the point where he's like, okay, I'm going to leave, like, with Nala. Yeah. And I wanted a little bit more of, like, their what their life was like and what kind of his, like, teenage years were like. Like, we see him literally become a teenager shaking his head back and forth on a log where he has, like, a ratskly little, like, mohawk <laughs> mane. I could have used a little bit more grounding of like what he was giving up to go back and also kind of a little bit more of what was going on on pride rock it goes from scar takes over to this place is destroyed and i would have liked maybe a little bit more of that and there actually was some of that in the original script they just cut out but i i do feel like that part of the movie feels a little more truncated than i would like yeah i mean again i think here we see disney kind of inventing a dime for the whole movie to turn on in the form of one song. I mean, I think where Lion King goes after that is interesting enough and dramatically grounded enough in these characters still that it isn't as jarring, I think, as it is in some of the other movies. But I definitely noticed that. I agree with you, Chris. Like, I think showing his time kind of metaphorically wandering in the desert and, like, finding himself, that would be really interesting and I think would even add to the stakes of him having to come back and face down Scar. Is that in Lion King one and a half? I will not find that. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of want to watch it after watching this again. (laughs) I've never seen it. She's got prequelosis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's also uh, one of the few, few songs I still know how to play on the piano. (laughs) It's like, just can't wait to be king. (laughs) I was also surprised how much of the rest of the music just really holds up. The score is amazing. It's so good. The score is incredible. And I don't know if you've seen or heard the Broadway soundtrack, but it's also excellent to make new songs. They take the score, the background score in certain scenes, and they turn that into a song. Oh, neat. It all works. It's gorgeous. The African chanting and just i agree was it you that's chris that said like aladdin felt like more like an outsider because they use like african musicians i believe his name was lebo m and he was the one that brought in like the african music feel and like the chanting and the choir and it just it really does yeah and it makes it feel authentic to where it is located versus you know nothing about aladdin feels like middle eastern yeah, there was a companion soundtrack called Rhythm of the Pride Lands that I'm, I'm sure you were aware of. Yeah. 
that was released probably like a year after the movie came out that had even more of the music from the movie and I think some music that wasn't in the movie that ended up being in the Broadway show. But yeah, even I think even maybe more than the songs themselves is that music is so well done and so instrumental, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> to uh, the success of this film. I think you should have pride in that, Chris. Mm. <laughs> I saw a Rocket Man recently and I kept being like, when are they going to get to the Lion King? <laughs> Because I didn't know how long, like in his time, in his life, they're gonna like keep the movie going. So I was like, "When are we getting the like?" They really focused on the middle '90s there. <laughs> Surprising. This movie's great. Yeah, the one. The don't one look is. at me like that. <laughs> don't shit on my movie. <laughs> no, I, I, I also I think it's Pick very very entertaining. Just the degree to which it relies on Bambi just is really evident to me, and so I, I think it's a great departure from that. But it, I just think it owes so much to Bambi with the dead parent, the adolescent time, like growing up with funny sidekicks, and then sort of the end with like a big fire. Is it just? It's a nice homage to Bambi, I think. But and the it, circle it makes of life it thing feel a little bit, yeah, like less original. If you've recently seen Bambi, it, you know, it feels a bit like here we're doing this again in our like 90s way. That's fine to me, though. Yeah. Well, I think as far as kind of loose remakes go, that's about as successful as you can make it. Where's my Bambi live action? Oh, it's coming, I'm sure. It's coming. Now that you've spoken the words out loud. God. John Favreau presents. We've got Chloe Grace Moritz as Bambi. No, no clue. <laughs> Bryce Dallas Howard as the hunter. <laughs> <laughs> it's an all-female remake of it Bambi is. live action. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got uh, Dakota Fanning is the gun. <laughs> what? Wanda Sykes is thumper. <laughs> so the influence and impact of the Disney Renaissance is none. <laughs> this era attracted the attention of many animation studios and film studios. Major film studios established their own animation departments, like Fox Animation Studios and Warner Brothers Feature Animation. A lot of the time, they were trying to ape Disney. It was met with, like, mixed results. There was Thumbelina, a troll in Central Park, the Swan Princess. <laughs> like, a lot of... I, I don't even know if you would know any of those titles. Some of those were Don Bluth joints. Mm -hmm. There was Anastasia. That was Don Bluth, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, you know, a hit. Kind of trying to ape Disney. That one was very much trying to ape Disney. Like, that was a pretty shameless knockoff, actually. Yeah, and DreamWorks Animation yeah. had The Prince of Egypt, which um, was kind of like Disney, but also kind of its own thing. It was tr very much trying to be, like, a serious film. Mm -hmm. Obviously, animation is highly considered. It became an Oscar category far into the future after these movies. So it took until 2001, um, with Shrek winning the Oscar, for the Oscars to have an animation category at all. But there have been other animation movies that were nominated for Best Picture, like Up, Toy Story 3, probably a few others. Yeah, interesting that they basically missed the actual like hand-drawn animation era, yeah. and basically almost all of the winners have been computer animated. Because <laughs> yeah. that's when Toy Story came out in 1995, so that's when that whole thing took off. But I think it's undeniable that these movies were very influential, particularly just with Disney trying to ape the success with Pocahontas and Mulan and Tarzan and, and everything. Do they succeed? I don't know. Maybe we'll do renaissance part two <laughs> yeah i think these movies solidify disney after a very shaky period i didn't look 
too deep into like what else Disney was doing in like the 70s and 80s like for like revenue they had their parks but like their movies were not making that much money and I don't think that they owned too many like live action arms like they did sort of like later in the late 80s and 90s but they were probably you know on pretty shaky ground and after this they obviously were not on shaky ground and so I think that these four movies basically enabled Disney to become what they are now which is a a monster (laughs) (laughs) which is a monolith slowly consuming everything I did want to just like mention the remakes in the sense that like it was very hard to get them out of my head when I was re-watching some of these movies particularly Beauty and the Beast maybe because that's the only one of them I actually saw but like especially with the character of LeFou like I just could not stop thinking of Josh Gad (laughs) yeah and sort of like the gay subtext that was there in the remake they're doing themselves the favor of money but I don't know that they're (laughs) doing themselves other favors with these remakes because I really feel like they're tarnishing sort of these movies that we agree are pretty much all very good to great and these remakes leave a very bad taste in my mouth because they're so similar it's like but it's like when they did that psycho shot for shot remake it's similar but it's not like yeah. they, there's something right. lost in translation if you were trying to do it's, the same it's thing it's like but, an uncanny valley yeah. situation whether it's cgi or not yeah <laughs> yeah you can't recreate it like scene for scene like that just doesn't yeah. work like you need to reinterpret things for a modern time and it feels like they're trying to address like certain controversial elements but they're not actually like reinterpreting anything and not like re reflecting like sort of modern times in any of this stuff so yeah i mean even though i really enjoyed watching a lot of these movies i ended up kind of feeling sad at the (laughs) end of this just because it reminded me so much that they're not making very many original things anymore and that in general like this whole culture of remaking old things is like kind of killing off the ability to make new things like if we were doing this podcast 20 years from now like what would we even talk about we'd only have like remakes to talk about so maybe it's just a weird time for disney and maybe they'll like figure out how to do something new again but right now it just feels very cynical and and i i just wish that they weren't messing with every single thing that we yeah, grew it, up with it feels like the company doesn't have a vision for things that will um help its legacy and like in creating like memories it's more like bottom line lion king was a hit people like the lion king let's redo it like this is a known properties and it's all about the bottom line and they're a business but i think in the long run that will hurt them yeah it's like what would today's kids even be nostalgic for is it for the lion king remake which is already nostalgic for something else like yes they they created all these memories for our generation and now they're just recreating those memories in a worse way regurgitating them yeah, yeah the, wor- the worst odd. thing is that these movies aren't good and i don't care what you say you'll never be able to convince me that any of these are good no at best maybe they're watchable but not good they have all the money in the world and they can't cast them right or or direct them right or it just looks so cheap i'd be all on board for remaking it if it's actually well made but they're not they're not well made grumpy <laughs> that's what we are <laughs> Well, I want to end on a good note. What was your favorite song in all four of these movies? What do you think is the best song? Oh, I think that's so hard because I, I, really I feel difficult. like you have to categorize like no. best villain song. What's your favorite song in all four of these? Probably Poor Unfortunate Souls. 
Yeah, actually, weirdly, it's coming down to like either poor, unfortunate souls or part of your world. That was the other one that I was thinking yeah. of. And, and interesting, they're both Little Mermaid. It's part of your world for me. <laughs> okay. I, I think that is maybe, and maybe the circle of life, but I think I give the edge to part of your world. It is just the most beautiful I want Broadway song. It's just gorgeous. It's perfect. I get chills. I know every lyric from when I was a little girl. <laughs> like, um, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know you guys would go with that. What about favorite movie of the four? It's The Lion King. <laughs> that is not surprising. <laughs> I'm going to say Little Mermaid. Yeah, I'm Little Mermaid, too. Like, top to bottom. Team Mermaid. I, I don't feel like anything's missing in it. I guess we all think that Beauty and the Beast is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> Between Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, though, which, what do you guys... Aladdin's better. <laughs> I'd say Aladdin's probably better. I think I might go with Beauty and the Beast, but it's, it, it kind of depends on the day, because I think... I think they're very opposite in that what one does really well, the other kind of doesn't do so well. So we recommend all these movies, though. <laughs> watch them all. They're great. Yeah. Watch these, not those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God that is all the Disney we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode... We're going to tell you some scary stories, perhaps in the dark. <laughs> Broad daylight, please. <laughs> you won't know if we have the lights on, listener. You can't see us. <laughs> We're getting ready for Halloween early by covering scary stories to tell in the dark. Also, the movie is about to come out. So we'll be taking a look back at the collection of stories retold by Alvin Schwartz with drawings by Stephen Gamble. I believe we really have to shout out those drawings on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> on this audio format. <laughs> so if you'd like to join us, get those books. Read up. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcast products. Subscribe to us on all the social medias and contribute to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash when we were young so we can provide more episodes. I am Seth Pearson. I'm Chris. <laughs> and I killed Mufasa. <laughs> <laughs> a whole new 